Hello and welcome to The Naked Scarf. I'm Adam. And I'm Andy. And in this episode we're going to be looking at the Sea Devils. So, Andy, it's been a while but give us your plot synopsis. Um, well this is third doctor, John Pertwee, uh, with the lovely Joe Grant as his assistant. And this is in the good old unit days and the master's been held in some sort of forty thing and forty thing, forty thing, forty thing, a fort, you know, one of those things. Um and, and and they think securely, but he's got the staff on his side and he comes up with this audacious plot to, you know, destroy everything or whatever, as he usually does using these sort of like weird monstery things from the deep and they, they, they might be called the sea devils you know yeah 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 the sea devils and and and, and the doctor and joe save the day okay that's fair my enough. plot synopsis because the last time with the blink one i went on for a long time and, and so i'm kind of like yeah you're, you're keeping it down I'm, keeping i am it real. i'm keeping it real um, you could equally say this is basically like like the series seven episode doctor who and the silurians except slightly more water-based, and yes. with Roger Delgado. <laughs> well, yes, uh, where to start? Where to start? Is this the first story we've talked about with Roger Delgado as the master? I think it is. It is, yeah. Yeah, because yeah, yeah, that be. probably... Isn't he awesome? Yes. yes I love Roger Delgado. Good. Definitely the best master, I think. He is very good, although it makes me laugh, because I, I, I do sometimes think to myself when I watch stories with uh, him and Pertwee in that, uh, that that you can tell in a weird kind of way that they are actually obviously quite good friends. Well, yes, which, which makes sense. Yeah. That, 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 that's part of what the whole because relationship are... appeals. The whole, or, or even the whole appeal of the relationship is what I obviously meant to say. Well, yeah, I, I know, but, uh, you know, it, it's um, it, it, it's nice. I, I always... There is always a sense that they're having fun. The, yes. coup, the coup characters, you know, much of the Doctor's like, oh, you scamp. <laughs> and, and the master's like, "Oh, doctor, I'll get you next time." It's a bit like, oh, "I really look forward to it." Yeah, yeah. we'll yeah, go for a drink a afterwards. Like, yeah, it's almost a bit. It, it's it's us on the side of pantomime at times, I think, but in a good way. Here's the thing: uh, Do you think that the master should always re- reflect the current doctor? Because I think one of the reasons the Delgado master is so well thought of, and rightly so, is that his his, as we were just saying, in some ways, his. Uh, master reflects the third doctor really well. They complement each other. Well, then when you've got Anthony Amy coming along, he kind of plays the same master against three different, four, actually four different doctors. And he's en- enjoyable, but he never quite gets the same Yeah, buzz, the same resonance. Yes, um, I, uh, that's a very good point. But it, it, it's always, it, it is just like people. When you write a character, you write it with a personality, and it, that personality, you know, it, mm. it's uh, um, especially... Uh, in, in Bridget Delgado's case, um, it, it's especially conceived to be this particular adversary to the Doctor, and it's, it's a very enjoyable relationship. In a similar way to how uh, John Sims' master uh, later played against yeah. Tennant, yeah, and and uh, that worked really well. And if you brought him back against Matt Smith, it just wouldn't work. No, this is it. People have said, "Oh, will he come back?" And I'm just like, "Well, apart from that, I think they broke the character a little bit. Yeah. I don't think you can actually bring him back anymore." I just think, yeah, he he and Smith, it wouldn't quite. No, click. it wouldn't be the same at all. Just like I don't think, I, I actually don't think Ainley's master. Uh, no, actually, he did work, but I think he worked at the beginning and at the end. But the stuff in the middle uh, of his time is, is is perhaps not not quite so good. Uh, no, so many things. This is this is almost an iconic. Well, no, it is quite an iconic story. So, I'm, perhaps I'm using I'm using the word iconic wrongly there, but the, the sea devils rising out of the sea is, is one of those images that people always, always associate with classic Who. I know, but 
the sea devils i mean bless them it is bbc design at the time at its very best you know they couldn't really have come up with a less sort of um uh evolved looking sea animal um uh, that's supposed to have some sort of form of intelligence you know and, and the best thing the best thing that i really love about the sea devils is what they're wearing Kind of like fishermen's nets. Like, do you think they just found I've, those I've one day and they feeling, were kind of like... I can't be sure because we didn't actually watch the making of on this one. I've got a feeling they end up wearing them because they thought they looked a bit rude without having any clothes on. Which is a very <laughs> BBC uh, attitude. Because they say Lurians, when they appeared, didn't wear clothes and no one went, holy God, it's a naked reptile. Protect the children. Um, but they just look hilarious with I, the little I, net things on. I mean, that must be such a pain in the ass when they're swimming around in the sea and they're getting everything, like, you know, all the local wildlife's getting caught up in the nets. And they're like, hey, dude, it, what it, gives? It, and we're like, having this conversation in the pub, weren't we? Wasn't it Steve who said that um, that they're a bit, the sea devils are a bit like angry Glaswegians in, in wife beater tops and with, <laughs> with, 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 a, with a steam iron in their hand? Yeah. <laughs> but they are but design issues aside I mean I actually think they look alright I mean I think the trouble is their eyes don't move and they've got a, they, they haven't got one of the best mouths because so the, it doesn't really ever quite sync up with their dialogue which well, is it's, it's a common problem at this time I think the problem with, is I think that they're designed in a way that it's supposed to evoke the word crustacean in your head but the problem is is that uh, the sort of uh, uh, sea animals from which they've obviously or, or, or you know sea dwellers from which they've obviously taken inspiration are the kind that you know, survive because they evolve so little over the years. They mm. just sort of like stay and, and don't take any risks and all the rest of it. Whereas the sea devils themselves are found to be quite an intelligent species. So mm. um, that kind of jars a little bit in, in my head. But uh, hey, that's just me being pernickety. That is slightly pernickety, actually. That's immensely pernickety. <laughs> what? If I ran a BBC uh, design <sighs> department, you'd sure as hell yes. get me thinking of all these pedantic things and driving everybody nuts with it. I'm sure. I think the, the thing with the sea devils actually is that they're not quite as effective as the Silurians in the sense that even the Silurians, and it's partly a script thing, I think the Silurians had more personality. I mean, they all looked the same and their heads wobbled, but they definitely had distinctive personalities. Whereas the sea devils, you get just like the one in charge who talks. Mm-hmm. And I think that's partly why the masters are there actually. Uh, or maybe you couldn't have too many villains with personalities when, when you've got the master there because he just kind of takes over, which is always his thing a little bit. You know, he he gives it the forces of I don't say, I don't want to say evil actually because this is a Malcolm Hoke script and in Malcolm Hoke scripts no one is ever truly evil, misunderstood or just with different ideas and, and conflicts. But you know, the master fires the, fires more the face of the villainy, mm. as it were. Yeah, with his little pointy beard. His little pointy beard. So yeah, it would be a far duller story without the master. And I don't think I mean I'll say straight up I love Doctor Who and the Solarians and I really like this, but I think Doctor Who and the Solarians is the stronger. Stronger one, without a doubt. Yeah. Let, let's tackle one, one of the things this episode is m- most well known for, the music. Yes. What do you think of the music? Um, By Malcolm Clark. Uh, it's um, very electronic. Do you <laughs> think it works? That's my very professional opinion. Um, I... At, at first, no, not so much. But the further it goes into the story, the more I kind of get used to it. So, yeah, I, I mean, it's taken a risk. I don't, I don't think it's entirely um, uh, necessary, but I, I don't think it was the worst. Gosh, 
doesn't that just sound intelligent and insightful? And aren't you glad you're listening to this podcast? Yeah, I'm sure they are. Um, I was going to say, I think some some bits of it don't work. Other bits, like his little master theme, I think are really, really good. I mean, it is generally frowned upon. And there are times it does sound like an electric kazoo. But I kind of miss this experimentation in Doctor Music. I mean, fair props to Murray Goad. You know, he he does writes lots of me- um, memorable bits of music and stuff. But I kind of miss it like this story in like the eighties when people were doing like weird experiments with with synths and electronics and things. And and I sometimes think Doctor Who music has lost its weirdness. But I don't it, know if you could do it in the same way now. I don't think you could. Because... It might have lost its weirdness. In terms of the evolution of the show, I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing because the episodes, the, the current run of episodes, um, uh, music-wise, I think they're going to age much better. Yes, you know, quite quite possibly. I guess if you have an orchest- general orchestral score, then and it's... also I find that um, uh, it's absolutely fantastic um, at sort of subtly ramping up the drama. The current orchestral. Subtly. Yeah, no, for, I, I subtly, in comparison to, say, a lot of Sylvester McCoy stories, when you have that very 80s music, and it just, like, kicks in all of a sudden, and it's I like, you know, I, I know you do, I know, Adam has so much Doctor Who music, I mean, and, and he just sits around listening to it. Like, you know, I, like, I, like when I was a teenager and I used to obsessively ha- listen to Placebo or something, Adam sits around and listens to scores from 80s Doctor Who. Um... And 70s. Uh, but no, my, my point was that I don't think you could ever accuse Murray God of subtlety. Ever. <laughs> I, I, I think in comparison to some of the 80s stuff, yes, you could, but, but not... Mm. I, okay, he's not massively subtle, but um, uh, I, I, th- then again, I, I think that he probably has pitched it just right for quite a lot of the uh, uh, <laughs> sort of storylines. Uh, don't get me wrong, I, I enjoy them. Murray Gold stuff, but like I said, it's just sometimes it is a little bit like you're sitting there watching a, a, a quote unquote sad scene, and it's like it's like he's right in, in your ear going, "Are you sad? Are you sad yet? How sad are you? Could you be a bit sadder?" Hang on, I've got to work on this Torchwood score. I'm going to put a lot of guitars irritatingly over it. Are you sad? Have a bit more string. Let's leave Torchwood out of this because let's face it, he does a fantastic like you know when you and I are excited about something or whatever, and we turn around to each other and start going do 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 do. We like, don't yeah. do that. When have we ever done that? You do that to me all the time. I have it a lot. You have. I have it in my head more often than no, anything no, when I do so. You turn around to me at times and start going do do do. Well, if you insist, God, I feel patronised. You're an incredibly cute person. You're over bubbly. You're like you're like a kitten in a basket. A kitten in a basket who can't get over the edge. <laughs> I don't know what to say. I really don't. Um, now you look even more like a kitten in a basket. <laughs> <laughs> Is that like chicken in a basket? Can you order it from certain pubs? No. Okay. No. Mm, tasty chicken, no. chicken in a basket. Moving on. I, I'm looking at my notes desperately trying to move on now. <laughs> Yeah, so this is a Malcolm Hope script. Like I said, probably one of the strongest writers of the Third Doctor era. Um, he did write for Second Doctor as well, but I always kind of in my head associate him more with the Third. I, I mean, this is for some ways a very typical Pertwee adventure, except for the fact that it's the Navy instead of Unit, and the Navy are actually slightly more effective than Unit are sometimes. <laughs> there are better shots. They seem to hit more Sea Devils than uh, than they miss, which is quite good. But it's interesting because you got the. Um, Trenchard character, who the the master lies to and, cr- yes. and gets on his side, who's in charge of the prison, 
and he he's very much the role of the um of the stupid civil servant that's a, a staple throughout the era and then he dies and then the next episode comes an actor who could almost be his brother his younger <laughs> brother playing uh private parliamentary secretary walker who again is a, is a stupid civil servant so you get two for, for for your buck in this story but it's interesting that the one only comes in after the other has died like he's on the acknowledgement that if both were there together it would be a bit ridiculous yeah well, it's it's. Um, I have to say, the story actually. Now, now you mentioned the uh, navy. Um, th- there are some sort of really fantastic sets. Well, I say sets, uh, sets, and, and and all the rest of it going on. And I actually think that they uh, filmed this uh, uh, with the navy. I think in Portsmouth. Yeah, yes, yes, they did. Yeah. I th- I've got a feeling that they basically went to the navy. You know, when we're shooting Mind of Evil, the army were really helpful, and they went. <laughs> <laughs> but actually, it's kind of appropriate to have a Navy story with John Pertwee, because I think he served in the yes. Navy. And because he, he was originally known in this country for the radio comedy, The Navy Lark. So he was a very kind of naval man. Yeah, no, it, it, it was good, because they got to use all the sort of Navy ships and the diving bell, and that all looks really good, like really solid for a, a, a Doctor Who kind of, you know. Yeah, it, it, does, it does look good. I mean, you know, like I said, there are, as always, there are certain visual limitations, but generally... It looks nice. Yeah. And it, it looks like they spent some money on it. Okay, this has the sword fight. The <laughs> best, single best sword fight in all of Who history. So good, they show it twice. Yes. But it does have a classic... I, I love that Pertwee moment where he's holding the master up and he's eating a sandwich. Actually, uh, to skip back a bit, food's a bit of a thing because it's an interesting thing about pri- par- uh, pri- uh, pri- private parliamentary secretary Walker is he's always talking about food. It's, an almost, it's a nice little character touch almost. He's always just like, you know, he's like, mm, this is nice. Let's murder all those sea devils. Yeah, we murder all these sea devils. Can I have some more food? It, it, it's just a little <laughs> I thing I picked, I picked up on. He's always talking about food. Uh, but food's in this a lot, actually, because at one point the doctor just casually takes a pile of sandwiches that Joe wanted and eats them all. Well, maybe and, the Navy catering uh, was really, really good. Maybe, but then when he holds, that's the saying, sword fight, holds the master at, at sword point, eats a sandwich, and then this is what I love, this is so, this kind of sums up their relationship, actually. He tosses the sword back to the master, and they carry on. I mean, I don't think they needed to show it twice, don't get me wrong, but they're obviously just trying to fill up, you know, six episodes, trying to fill up a bit of time. But it, that is actually, I might have mentioned this before, I think I have, but that, a uh, bit of him holding the sword and eating sandwich is my dad's single yes, favourite Doctor Who moment. About that, yeah. Bless your dad. Bless my dad indeed. Apart from the lack of unit, this could almost be the absolute typical poetry story in a good way. But things like like the master works with with, with villains uh, or with the the aliens. Sorry, I really shouldn't use the word villains. Oh, they're not even aliens, I guess technically. With, with, with the the other, and then um, ends up getting betrayed by them and having to work with the doctors to survive because we've not seen that before. No. Terror of the Autons, Claws of Axis. You know, it's almost a bit... Uh, I'm surprised at no point did, did, did Pertwee just not go to the Master. Have you ever realised what happens every time you join up with another alien? Always, always. Uh, and, and, and let's talk a little bit about uh, their weapon. Their little, you know what it looks like. You know when you get CDs. those sort of suction things that oh, the you sea used devil's to weapons, put on, yeah, yeah the, the sea devils uh, that you put onto a glass or something. Like if you if you mm-hmm. want Spider Man up the side of things or or, or whatever. Um, yeah, it, it it's it's just hilarious. If somebody came towards me like holding a big suction pad, I kind of be like wearing wearing a wife beater. Wearing a wife beater, I'd be like, oh, 
Right? Okay. But it's, I guess it's an attempt to do a gun that doesn't look like a gun. You know, it's trying to do a bit different. I, I guess, but, you know, even taking the circular design, like, there, there's possibly a potential there to, to do something that didn't look quite so much like, you know, it had come from B&Q. Not that they would have had B&Q at the time. Are you sure it was 1972? Yes, 1972. Well, maybe they weren't the same major economic force that they are today. But, you know, it's always this thing when we talk about designs in, a, in older science fiction stuff that actually what might seem silly to us could have seemed quite modern. But different... there was some fantastic, you know, uh, the era, there was some fantastic sort of uh, examples of, of not particularly expensive uh, stuff that looked really, really good. Admittedly, a lot of it was courtesy of Hollywood. Not so much in the early 70s. I mean, you're talking more like the post-Star Wars effects I, I feel I, I would have to actually the things I'm thinking of I'd have to start looking up the dates that they were released to you know I don't think it's a bad design that's my point I don't, I don't necessarily agree that it looks it doesn't look particularly silly actually I because I, it's quite simple and I think that works it's not like covered in buttons and flashing lights like some other Doctor Who d- gun designs it's not lots of silly shapes it's pretty simple and I think that works maybe I'm looking at this too much from a post-Kensian point of oh. view <laughs> That's Andy's um, secret talk for I'm talking bollocks. Yeah, by the yeah. Way. No, this is this is a stupid thing. There's a show on BBC Three called Don't Tell the Bride, which I really like watching because I'm a horrible, cynical person. I like to take bets in my head on how long it takes these people to get divorced. And when my flatmate caught me watching it recently, I told him that I only watch it from the point of view of uh, traditional values meets third wave feminism in a post-Kensian setting, and he was like because my flatmate, bless him, tends to take people very literally and <laughs> tried to instigate a conversation with me about it. And I was like, shut up, she's about to see the dress. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> oh, God. Uh, do you want to do a Don't Tell the Bride podcast? Oh, I'm... my God, that would be amazing. Sorry, that would be amazing. <laughs> that would be so amazing, though. It would be like, I don't oh, think my we'd God, have... I don't... she's losing her shit. It's... I don't think we'd have the same audience as we do for this one. No, we probably wouldn't, actually. Unless there's a big Don't Tell the Bride Doctor Who crossover <laughs> that I'm not aware of, which there could be. Maybe there's less fiction about it. I don't know how that would work, but there we go. Uh, Moving on. Wedding-themed episodes, Runaway Bride. Um, <laughs> I, I think we're stretching. Some, yeah, I'm stretching. So I've arranged for the bride to be kidnapped by the doctor halfway through the ceremony. No, I don't see that one. I, 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 I don't know. Anyway, reverse the plow to the neutron flow. What people often associate to be the classic Pertwee saying. I think this is the only time he says it in full. In is in this story. I think he then says it in the Five Doctors as a callback, but this is the first time I think he says that in full. I think he says tr- tr- during the time like he's like I've reversed the polarity. Yes, but this is the first. Time we get reverse the polarity of the neutron flow. No one knows what a neutron flow is, but it's it's something you should do if you need to escape or blow something up. Right, it is. It's, it just sounds legit, doesn't it? Yes, it, it is kind of like my post-Kensian thing. Shut up. <laughs> kitten in a basket, little kitten, big basket. No one else has to put up with this on their podcast, you know. Really, no one else. I no thought I was else. being quite well behaved. I'm actually trying. You're very trying. Oh, now I feel like the kitten in a basket. Oh, let's not get into this. Um, no, lest anyone discover your disturbing furry side. I'm not a furry. You keep telling yourself that. Doll. I do. I do. If people want to dress up as, as animals and and have fun together, I actually have no objection to that, each of their own. However, I do not engage in that particular practice. Of course you don't. 
So what's with the Skrull Nut King costume in your wardrobe? Moving on. <laughs> this is quite a good Joe Grant story. It is a good Joe Grant she story. She does a lot she in this. Do a lot of I was going to say she gets and... rescued the Doctor. She beats up a couple of uh, highly trained military guards with a bit of uh, Avengers style kung fu. Yep, and she uh, wears and a she, cute suit. I was going to say she wears the most seventies white suit I think I've ever seen. Very cute. I would take that suit and do bad things to it. Customization. Okay. Okay. Yeah, but no, it's, it's certainly a very bad. good. You kind of see them work really well, uh, Pertwee and and Manning work really well in this story together. You know, they're very much established in their Doctor Companion relationship, and you you can see how it's kind of often been the uh, kind of the template for a lot of future uh, Doctor Companion relationships. I think. Yeah. No. It's it's uh, it is nice, and it is nice to see. You know the, the, the sort of uh, uh, probably what I would call the real start of um, getting some female companions in who you know do more than because I, I know that to a certain extent um, in e- even in Hartnell stories in a, uh, to a certain extent um, you know uh, everyone had their roles to play but I, I think there's uh, definitely a difference in the way it's portrayed um, possibly I mean the Hartnells different in some ways because particularly when it started uh it was more of an ensemble show i'd argue yes very so that's so. very different i think the doctor wasn't always the main focus partly because every, every couple of weeks hartner went i'm off on holiday i'm gonna get knocked unconscious in this episode or maybe next two i've got my lines anyway i'm going <laughs> off by and they went ah oh, ian be manly and do something and he'd do that because ian chesterton is the toughest mo- mofo in the world but um, yeah, I mean, to be fair, like, you had Liz Shaw, obviously, in Series 7. I mean, the thing yeah. to remember is they got rid of her because she was too intelligent and they wanted someone, frankly, dumber as a companion. So they got Yes, which isn't the best way no, to be is... treating your female co-star. But, but I think Jo does... I wouldn't say character development in the way we think of it today, but she does get more competent yes. as, as they go along and she gets more... Uh... Well, no, no, it's, it's obviously... I mean, I, I think that's actually um, who is a fascinating thing to watch um, in terms of uh, female or, or how uh, female empowerment uh, is portrayed on television because, of course, it was on so consistently. Yeah. Um, and, and it is interesting to, to sort of watch in, in the context of what you know was uh, the changes that were sort of happening at the time. And, um, and, and yeah, I mean... You have to remember that um, in in the 1960s, when Doctor Who uh, first started airing, I mean, we all know about the swinging 60s and all the rest of it, but um, uh, this was the first decade in which women had access to birth control. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it was um, it is a fascinating time for yeah. it to uh, uh, kick off, really, um, with uh, uh, female presence. And um, yeah, in fact, there's a excellent doctorate for somebody to write. Uh, the evolution of feminism in Doctor Who. I'm sure somebody probably has, to yeah. be honest. I'd be really surprised if somebody hasn't at least done some work on that. Because, uh, the th- and, and the thing is, the thing that I think makes it uh, very different to a, a lot of uh, shows, which are uh, long-running shows with uh, female characters in, is the fact that the female characters changed so frequently. Mm. Um, because it meant that each time, each female character, in, in some ways, whilst uh, retaining uh, definite personality traits, and uh, uh, but it, it sort of was an evolution of, of, of what was considered to be, you know, acceptable or, or right or, or realistic at the time. Sorry, I went off on a bit of a one. No, no, I? fine. It's it's what the podcast for. <laughs> if, if, if we start not talking, then it's going to be thirty minutes of silent air and occasionally me sniffing. And you know, doing that kitten thing. Shut up.
Pertwee's just generally very good in this story, I think. I mean, it's been one of these things, actually, doing this podcast and me watching some Pertwee, and just the fact that there's been a lot of Pertwee out the last couple of years on DVD as well, it's made me really, really appreciate him in some way. I mean, I always liked him, but you realise just how he always plays everything straight in a way, or he always takes it seriously. He's so dashing, isn't he? And he's very dashing in a way that no other Doctor's ever managed to be before or since, and he's, in some ways... I think it's the cape. It is partly the cape, but he's such a... I don't want to say breath of fresh air, because that sounds weird, but he's still at the moment... This is him in his prime as a Doctor, I think, very much. This is him at the absolute top of his powers, and it shows. Yes, I think his portrayal of the Doctor is very honest. Mm. I I think that maybe maybe more so than most of the uh, actors who've played the Doctor over the years, um, uh, it's, it's the one with the most of himself in it. Because mm-hmm. uh, you know we're never sure about Tom Baker or we there could be. No. I know, you watch him, you think actually no, you really weren't acting that much. But no, I know what you mean. And what is that famous thing he said to? I think he said to Terence Dix, oh, "Who should I base the Doctor on?" And and and, and Terence Dix said, "You should base him on yourself." And, and I think Bert was like, "I don't really know who I am." And oh, then later him. said that actually playing the Doctor helped him find that out. Though, though, again, it's another Pertwee thing that when the Master skates at one point, he luckily finds some jet skis so Pertwee, yes. can, do, Pertwee can engage in his love of uh, vehicles and just like, I'm chasing. But I'm not sure, you chase someone on a jet ski, I'm, I'm not sure how you catch, well, not how you catch them, but you can't, how you tip them over. There's no weapon. You can't leap yeah, from one jet ski to the other. Cool, it is, it? it is. Especially, you know, at the time. And uh, um, yeah, no, it's, it's interesting that you say that because sometimes I can't decide whether Tom Baker as a person is more or less eccentric than his doctor. I having seen more. him... Have um, you ever read his uh, autobiography? No, but um, having seen him... Because he did um, the voiceover on Little Britain, yeah, yeah, didn't he? Yes. And also, having seen him on Have I Got News For You? And I'm just like, you're, you're such a nutter. You're brilliant. Really, <laughs> you're absolutely yeah. brilliant. Brilliant he, nutter. He is, he is definitely insane. Yeah. But I, I think, he, in a way, way, he might actually be more eccentric than his doctor. Yeah, yeah I think you might be right, actually. <laughs> but, I mean, the thing about Pertwee, you're right, he's very straightforward, and that's a compliment. That's yes. not like... There's not saying he's not... There's not, There's nothing to his character. There is. There is a lot. But he is just very... And it is it is sometimes almost refreshing. Now we're so used to the Doctor lies. And, yes, and the Doctor and, and, is and, deceitful and, and tricksy. And, and, which, and, which he or, is or to an extent. Or even the Doctor has to conceal so much. Like, and yeah. he's this big enigmatic figure. And I, I, I don't get me wrong, I enjoy those portrayals. And Matt Smith is possibly my favourite Doctor of all time, if I'm being honest. But yeah, there's something really, really lovely about just seeing Pertwee being just straightforward and, and direct. And, and not holding back, and I just I just like that. And be, and be, and be you're right, being so goddamn cool as well. No yes. other Doctor is ever quite as cool as Pertwee is. I mean, See, like I said, it's the sword fights. It's it's the it's the it's, it's the caves. It's, yes, it's just yeah. Love I, it. he, no, he is very sort of uh, uh, Patrick McGowan and, uh, and, and Patrick like McGowan. McGowan. Sorry. Um, <laughs> Uh, but it, it is that kind of same thing, isn't it? That debonair, swashbuckling, sort of very stereotypical man of the, you know, and 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 because Matt Smith's doctor is is pretty cool, but it's sort it's, of uh, it's, it's, he's uh, not straightforward. In yeah, the same he's way. not straightforward in the same way. And like it's said, interesting. I, sorry, do you go on. I was going to say, I mean, like I said just previously, but it's really important. I think never like straightforward is, is definitely a compliment in this case. It's not. I just and, and he must have been so after after Hartnell and Troughton to have this big dashing man. We forget how different the Doctors were uh, yes. you know, before anyone really had quite such a conceived idea. Yeah, the the conceived idea of what the Doctor should be didn't come along to quite late in the run. I'd say to an extent, in the original run. I mean, not until probably Baker's time um, that people really got into their heads what the Doctor should and shouldn't be. Yeah. So in these you know these days, it's still that kind of he is fresh. He's di- so different and. 
Something has occurred to me, actually, that's uh, quite interesting. I mean, when I uh, used to um, uh, study uh, philosophy, you know, in a classroom, um, I, I had sort of spoken a, a lot at the time uh, about this idea of, of sort of uh, a religion and the way our gods have evolved over the course of, uh, of, of uh, human history and how our gods started off being um, when human civilization sort of as we recognize it was in its infancy like greek gods roman gods they, they started off being very human you know they they fought and brawled and scrapped yeah. and and you know they were just people who who lived up a mountain and 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 had magical powers that explained everything that we couldn't and um and over the years as uh humankind have gotten to know and understand uh how the world around them works a bit better it's interesting to see how gods have changed, mm-hmm. how gods have gods themselves have evolved, and, until because uh, a, a god, or at least a, a human god, um, it, it, it essentially sort of fills that gap, that gap between uh, you know what we do know and what we don't, yeah. and, um, and 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 basically it, it provides the explanation until we get to the present day, and and if you look at our present day god, who's the sort of you know formless entity um who doesn't really have a, a physical presence and in fact his physical presence um is is actually it's not himself he he creates you know somebody to go on his behalf and, and channel because you know um he obviously doesn't do that and and um and you know it's all seeing and, and all knowing and um and and yeah it's it's and you're, you're much more saying, mysterious you're basically saying pertwee's a greek god the third doctor. Well, no. What I'm saying is, is that, um, that the, it, same, it's the same process, has, the happened same process with the doctor. has happened with the doctors. Yes, yeah. um, the the doctor starts off um, uh, being alien. Yes, but you know, very very human mm. in his alienness, and um, and he goes on, and it's you you can see it that there's no sort of backward turn as such there's there's not really a point where you know it sort of takes two steps back and becomes a little more human with every incarnation of the doctor he just becomes more and more mysterious i think further Mm. away from us i would argue the mysteriousness didn't really happen to seven because these the the, the doctor started off mysterious and then end of trials when we find out where he comes from and then during the Pertwee and uh, Bake years we kind of find more about his past uh, we see more Gallifrey we find out more about Time Lords until the point where Time Lords are named up quite a bit and so that loses some of its mysterious appeal absolutely but um, I, I think that 6 and 7 there's, there's almost sort of a, a Loki kind of element 6? really? yeah absolutely really? yeah okay. he, he becomes, I don't agree but <laughs> he becomes more um he becomes more unpredictable. I, I I guess so, but I think trouble is a, that unpredictableness was just m- more mood swings. I think it, it's difficult. I, I wouldn't say. I mean, I I would definitely agree that Seven is very trickster. Is and absolutely. I would say Loki and Nancy, any of those trickster gods, absolutely. I'm not sure I'd agree with you on Six. I, I think that, I think I he think was just six... moody and a bit bad tempered at times. I wonder though if that's supposed to be the transition between sort of Five and his his absolute because Five was a, a human doctor. In, yeah, in, you know he was very boyish and very you know um, much a, like Pertwee actually very straightforward and, and 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 yeah quite quite straightforward and. Um, you know, whereas Tom Baker was was uh, still a human doctor, but mm. but he's slightly more insane with it. You know, yes. Um, whereas uh, a six, it's it's almost like 
um, if you look at it in context, it's almost like those those mood swings, all the rest of it was actually representing a transition as such. No, I guess maybe. Yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously, it wasn't meant to be at the time, but no, look, looking no, in retrospect, no, you, no, you, can, you can always and, come... And people rarely write these things consciously. No, and They just sort true. of happen and evolve as it goes on. That's very true, actually. That was a really interesting talk. Nothing to do with the Sea Devils, but that was quite good. We'll just say, though, Quite a downbeat ending, I always thought, because the the the, the 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 doctor's forced to destroy the sea devils, which he really doesn't want to do. Because yes. it, it in Doctor and the Hilarious, it's a brigadier who blows them up, but in this time, it's the doctor who makes that decision. Yeah, which is quite interesting. And uh, the master escapes with using one of his amazing rubber masks. I mean, I love the way they pull the rubber mask off the guy, the master rubber mask, and it's so obviously a rubber mask, and they're like, "Oh, oh, it's a rubber mask." You know, did you not notice? No wonder you thought the guy was dead. It's like, yes, his his face has this strange, pallid, rubbery feel. He's obviously just died. That's okay. Or it's a mask. That continues that tradition today into the most high-budget Hollywood films. What was I watching the other day? Captain America. Mm. And I, I won't say what happens, just in case any of you are planning on I seeing haven't seen it, it and don't know and blah, blah, blah. There's only one good thing about that film. That's Hayley Atwell and her gorgeous vintage wardrobe and her pouty, pouty red lips. But... Um, no, uh, apart from that, there, there is a, a scene where the, the baddie, who is played by Agent Smith, um, is... <laughs> or oh, Hugo <laughs> Weaving, as I believe he's sometimes... Yeah, he, he, he takes off a rubber me. mask in much the same way. And like when you look at this film and all the CGI that they obviously stuck into it and the massive Hollywood budget that it obviously had, and then there's this really crap rubber mask moment in it. And I was just like, well, I, I hope that was a homage because, you know... That, that that's acceptable <laughs> but you know it is definitely a surprising downbeat ending it's even more downbeat when you consider that the fact that Master Escapes leads, direct, leads directly into the time monster yes the time monster being the only story I haven't been able to bring myself to watch the final episode of oh, I, I was watching it and I watched it and I was just like I, I, I turned off I watched that last episode later three months on I still haven't got round to watching the final episode getting in a basket it's getting in a basket shut up <laughs> Shut up, I'm not getting in the basket. Yeah, totally. I'm getting not in the getting basket. in the basket. You're adorable. Shut up, I'm not adorable. Yeah, I'm... let me pet you behind the ears. I'm going to find someone else this bloody podcast <laughs> with. Right, anyway, I think that's pretty much it. I think we, 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 we flogged that horse until it's twitching and bleeding and... That was a terrible That's metaphor. That's a really horrible thing it to was. say. It was, it was. But we, this, this horse is, to give this horse a burial... Thing. Must it be a horse? I, I think that we have uh, uh, discussed this about as far so as it's going to go it, yes. today. And I'm... if I make one more kitten in a basket reference, I think that Adam might actually, you know, tear my head off. So, um, yes, that, that seems like a good place to leave it okay. with my head clearly intact. So, uh, if you want to contact us, you can get in touch with us at. <laughs> It's been a while since we've done this. Nakedscarf at gmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter at Nakedscarf. If you go on Facebook and type in Nakedscarf, we have a group. And we also have a Tumblr, which is nakedscarf.tumblr.com. Thank you. Uh, we also apologise for this, the delay between Blink and this, but real life has been kicking our bottoms once more. So we'll hopefully be back onto a slightly more regular recording schedule. But, you know, we're still here for you guys. Next episode, we're going to be looking at the Space Museum. 
Oh, I love the Space Museum. Willow Don't Hartnell. tell them that. Don't bother listening to the next one if you tell them what you think about it now. He hides inside a Dalek. Yes, it's your favourite moment in Doctor yes, Who. Yes, it is. Oh, and I, I just quickly want to say one more thing, actually. Uh, recently, Adam and I went to see uh, the Oodcast uh, recording live. Yes, we did. And it was fantastic. Yes, they, they were amazing. It was really very good. And, uh, and we very much enjoyed the improvised Doctor Who episode that happened before that as well. The wine which featured, of malevolence. Yeah, which... Um, I, uh, which, which uh, yeah... Featured uh, Sophie a, Aldred. It did, and yes. Dan Starkley, who's a Centauran. I'm amazed that uh, Adam actually stayed in his seat. There was a certain amount of, you know, teenage crush <laughs> right there, right in front of him, right there on the in front stage. Of me. It was awesome. It's okay. I didn't know what to do. He only drew oh. a little. Oh, really but uh, no, it was it was really fantastic. It was brilliant. Very it was enjoyable. brilliant. We did think we did wonder about doing a scarf live, but we realised it'd just be us arguing on stage in front of a group <laughs> yeah. of people. And so nobody just... wants to see that. I'm surprised that anybody wants to listen to that. To tell you <laughs> anyway, folks. Until next time, take care. Mm-hmm.